0: Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman from the adulteress with her smooth words who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her god for her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed none who go to her come back nor do they regain the paths of life so you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths the paths of the righteous for the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. This is the word of the Lord. Proverbs, particularly here in chapters 1 through 9, is working through this the theme of, of the two paths, the, the way of wisdom and the way of folly. Walk in the way of the good, the father says to his son. Keep to the paths of the righteous. those who forsake the paths of uprightness will perish. Sometimes we say this to our children, and I remember being on the receiving end of those admonitions when I was a young man, hearing my father hearing others saying these things, and one thing they would they would often say, and the thing that i I, I remember them saying the the, the I've been there, I know this, I've walked this before, would you just please listen to me? Because it's true. When the father says to his son here, if you keep to this path, it will be good for you. But the young man often says, oh, but the other paths look so interesting, and there's so much excitement, there's so much enticing... way." And the father says to his son, yes, I know what lies down that path. And he says, don't go there. Learn wisdom. Seek wisdom. Start now. Don't wait until you've reached the end of that path and say, oh, that was a bad idea. Start now and seek wisdom. In our day, few people are seeking wisdom. Very often we seek pleasure. Entertainment, happiness. Just keep me distracted so that I don't have to think about how hard life is. But if you look around you, how, how well is it working for our culture? The pursuit of happiness has ended in depression and anxiety. Maybe we should listen to the ancient wisdom of Proverbs. For the Lord gives wisdom From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. Over the last year, I've had a lot of opportunity to talk with Outsiders, to use the term that Paul will use in Colossians 4. And and Paul urges us when we're we're dealing with outsiders, those who are not believers, to walk in wisdom toward them, to let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. What's that language about? Seasoned with salt. Why do you use salt when when you're cooking? It's like, well, you want it to taste good. And it's also good for you it preserves well it it makes it taste good it's nutritious it's delicious it's good and that's the way that we should walk towards in our in our engagement with outsiders how do we walk with those who are who are non-christians with those who are post-christians with those who are who are outside the family of jesus we should walk in wisdom we should walk in a way that they see they see something different in us and that's why we're singing psalm 84 because psalm 84 shows the beauty and delight of god's presence as the psalmist says it's it's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of god than to dwell in tents of wickedness it's it's better to have a a minor role a little a, a small place in the house of god than to have the the the, the mansions the the, so, the to dwell means to be basically to be the owner of the tents of wickedness. No, I'd rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather be in a small place in God's house than live anywhere else. Our New Testament lesson comes from Colossians chapter four. Colossians. Chapter 4, we're starting in verse 2. Hear now the word of our God from Colossians 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And I'll say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Paul's closing concerns in the book of Colossians are are prayer and walking in wisdom toward outsiders. Uh, Some might try to use the word evangelism to refer to walking in wisdom toward outsiders, but it's, it's worth noting that Paul doesn't use that term. Paul does not tell the Colossians to evangelize their neighbors. He tells you to walk in wisdom toward them. He tells you to let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt well seasoned, so that you might know how you ought to answer each person. so you clearly need to understand the Gospel and you need to know how to articulate what G- what Jesus has done and and but but he doesn't use the term evangelism for this. Now, he does talk about evangelism. He says for you to pray for us. Pray for those who preach the gospel that God may open a door for the word. And how will God open a door for the word? Very often, it will be because of how you are walking toward outsiders. It'll be because of how you are speaking graciously with your neighbors and your friends because they will start to ask questions about why you live this way. Uh, the word evangelist in Greek means one who preaches the gospel. And not every Christian is a preacher. Now, it's true. Every Christian needs to know the gospel, understand the gospel, be able to articulate what the gospel is. But nowhere does the New Testament say that every Christian is an evangelist. In fact, Paul says very explicitly in Ephesians 4.11 that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers for the purpose of equipping the church. For the purpose of doing the work of the ministry that in order that the body might grow. The, the apostles, in the same way that not everybody is an apostle, not everybody is a prophet, not everybody is a pastor, not everybody is a teacher. Not everybody is an evangelist. When Paul speaks to the Colossian Christians, he does not tell them, you go out and evangelize your neighbors. He tells them to pray. And particularly pray for Paul and Timothy. Pray for their traveling presbytery, which we'll talk about because that's what he's talking about here. Pray for all those who preach the gospel, all those who evangelize. That's where, in a very real way, what I'm doing right now is evangelism. What I'm doing right now is preaching the gospel. That's what the evangelist's task is. Paul tells the Colossians that you need to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside so that you are always ready with an answer. to use Peter's language from 1 Peter 3. That you're always ready with an answer for the hope that is in you. But part of, part of it is, I, went, I, once, I once heard a pastor uh, who, who took this view. Um, some of you may be a little bit shocked by what I just said. Some of you have heard, oh, but every, every Christian is supposed to evangelize. I, I once heard a pastor who was really forceful about this. He went, he goes, he went even further than I do. He, he would say, sort of, you're not supposed to tell, give the gospel to anybody. Now, his church had more new Christians, recent converts, than any church I've been in for many years. How because he did a great job of training his congregation how to walk in wisdom with their speech always seasoned with salt so that their friends and neighbors were constantly asking them for the reason for the hope that was in them. And they said, ah, oh, you should come and hear the gospel. Because part of it is when every Christian thinks of themselves as an evangelist, then everybody's trying to go out and and oftentimes people who are not well-trained, not well able to do it, are going out, and the people they're talking to aren't ready to hear the gospel. In fact, I, I, went, I had a, a, another pastor friend who once said, If Christ was coming back, if we knew that Christ was coming back in 10 years, what should the church be doing right now? He said, We should shut up for the next five years. Because we've been so noisy in all sorts of unhelpful ways shut up for the next five years and just live the gospel so that hopefully the last five years they'd be able ready to hear us we get so distracted by so many things that what is it that what is it that they, they need to hear or they need to hear the gospel well but so many people as over the last year as I've, as I've, as I've I, I now actually spend a lot of time with unbelievers but so many of the unbelievers in our city they're not just unbelievers generically they're post christian they've walked away from the gospel at least they th- what they think was the gospel but most of what they think is the gospel wasn't really the gospel they've never actually heard the gospel they've just walked away from what they think of as christianity they need to hear the real gospel but they're not gonna, but if somebody if somebody uses Christian language they're going to walk away immediately because they don't they they think they know what Christianity is and they've walked away from it how do we get to a point where they're ready to hear the gospel where they're ready to say why are you, why do you act this way i've i've started having some of those moments where people are saying sort of you're why are you doing this why are you why do you live this way why do you do what you do and so I've, I've had a chance if in a couple of instances but but that's where when paul says what I do in my daily life i need, if I'm going around trying to sort of quote unquote evangelize everybody that's not going to connect with the way that where people are the way that the way that we the way that the, the way that people are when they become ready to hear they're going to be asking why do you live this way what's different about you and then you can say come and see because that's where the gospel when the gospel is preached when the when the people of god are living as the people of god in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation that's where the gospel grows and flourishes which is what paul said in, the, in chapter one as he 's pre- he's telling them the Gospel is growing and flourishing in all the world as also among you, so the results of the christ centered life i mean this is as we, we spend a lot of time in Colossians three, but sort of the results of that christ centered life of of Christ in you, the hope of glory, to go back to, to chapter one and two that The results of Christ in you, the hope of glory, is that if you have died with Christ, if you have been raised to newness of life in him, if your life is now hidden with Christ in God, then you should be characterized by prayer and by speech that is gracious and seasoned with salt. Now, now, this is also, these are two of the things that are really hard in the Christian life. Do you find it difficult to pray sometimes? (laughs) That it's, Maybe for a couple minutes you can get you can get going, but then it can be hard to kind of keep going. Other thoughts intrude. You've lost all concentration. And gracious speech, oh boy, walking in wisdom, the people around us are so hard to get along with. It's sometimes easier to think of unbelievers as the enemy. But Paul says we should make the best use of the time. If the gospel is going to grow and flourish in all the world, as it also does among you, then we need to remember what we are doing here. If the gospel has taken hold of our hearts and lives, then we will respond with prayer and with gracious speech towards outsiders. But in order to understand what Paul's doing in verses 2 to 6, I want to actually work through these final greetings first because Paul's actually illustrating what he's talking about in, uh, in, these, in these greeters and greetings. Uh, in verses seven to fourteen, he 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 passes on the greetings of those around him. Uh, he also he first starts by talking about these these two messengers that he has sent to carry the letter. Uh, Paul, uh, Tychicus and Onesimus. Paul always uh, traveled with what you might call a, a traveling presbytery. I, I, Presbyteros uh, pres, is simply the Greek word for elder. These are Paul always always has a group of 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 preachers that are traveling around with him. He, only, only when he's in Athens is he ever by himself for any significant amount of time. He's generally traveling with other, other or, you might say, ordained ministers, people he's training for the ministry. You, you, you get to see all sorts of this uh, throughout, his, throughout his letters. And he describes Tychicus as a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Now, all of these terms, beloved brother, faithful minister, faithful diakonos, a a fellow servant, a a, a co this is the term, bond servant, uh, all these terms are, are terms that Paul uses to describe his colleagues in the ministry. Tychicus was the bearer of the letter to the Colossians. He's also the bearer of the letter to Ephesians. That's if, and Paul says that he has sent Tychicus in order to update the Colossians on Paul and Timothy's activities so that he may encourage your hearts. He wants the Colossians to hear how he's doing, what has been going on. Paul's in, obviously in prison, he's, but, he's, but he has an opportunity to preach. Uh, one of the things that you, you often see in the Roman prison system is... To be imprisoned doesn't mean you're stuck in a jail cell far away from anybody. It's oftentimes in a, in a, in a house with, with guards to make sure you don't run away. But Paul is plainly able to uh, receive, receive visitors. He's able to preach and uh, have uh, quite a ministry during his imprisonment. And with Tychicus, Paul has sent Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Now, we'll, we'll go on to the book of Philemon next week, and we'll hear that Onesimus was a slave. Uh, now, we don't know for certain that what all happened after the book of Philemon was written, but we do know that a few years later, there was a certain fellow named Onesimus who was bishop of Ephesus. So, well, we don't know for certain it's the same Onesimus, but most likely it is because he, Paul has already been training Onesimus for the ministry and now he is uh, sending, sending Onesimus back. Uh, and there's also the letter to Philemon that we'll look at next time. But then also Paul sends greetings from these three, what he calls, members of the circumcision uh, in verses ten and eleven there 's Aristarchus from Thessalonica. We hear about him in acts twenty seven and, and also elsewhere in Acts. He is frequently found traveling with paul so he's uh, and he 's referred to as my fellow prisoner, so apparently Aristarchus had been imprisoned as well uh, and then also uh, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas uh, which which is an interesting just it, it 's easy to just sort of ru- run over these sometimes, but if you think back, Mark had actually been with Paul in his first missionary journey, but Mark had sort of left the team and sort of gone home. And so when they came to their second missionary journey, Paul says, eh, let's not take Mark. He's not all that reliable. Barnabas says, no, no, no. I, want to, I, I think, I think he'll, turn, he'll turn out fine. And so Barnabas and Mark had gone off together, and Paul and Silas had gone off together. Well, in the book of Acts, that was the last we heard of it. But in Colossians, we hear, oh... There was a reconciliation, so, so sometimes, sometimes you see conflict and you and you wonder, was it ever resolved? Here we find out it was. They did actually resolve, and now uh, John Mark is uh, is is now one of Paul's uh, traveling presbytery in, in where he where he's imprisoned, and then also Jesus is uh, called justice uh, is referred to in verse eleven. Now, part of this is that. The reason why he's called Justice is because many of the uh, people who were who were named Jesus, uh, because Jesus is just a good Jewish name. It's Joshua, in, tr- translated into Greek. There were so there were lots of people named Joshua Jesus, but many who became Christians felt really awkward being called Jesus, <laughs> and so he was, he was. So you you don't find that being used nearly as often um, after this time. But um, so he's he he goes by Justice. But Paul describes these as being of the circumcision among his fellow workers among this traveling presbytery these are These are Jewish Christians who still practice circumcision. Uh, some Jewish Christians, like Paul, are not of the circumcision uh, paul 's own practice was that when he was with J- Jews, he would observe their their rituals and their practices. But when he was with Gentiles, he would not, and so Paul does not he, he, is, he is not. Of the circumcision party, but uh, but there are those of the circumcision who are these are faithful Christians. There so there are there are those there are those uh, Judaizers, and Paul has no no time for them. The Judaizers are the ones who are saying Gentiles have to be circumcised, but in the first century, and I would say even to this day, if a Jew becomes a Christian, that Jew is not required to you know, start eating pork. Jews are welcome to continue keeping the the mosaic mosaic law. They're just not welcome to impose that on Gentiles, <laughs> because that's not something that is uh, required of Gentiles. And so, when Paul travels with the, the these, it, it would be easy enough for these these three, Aristarchus and Mark and and. Justice; these three would 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 generally sort of spend their time focusing on on working with the, the the Jewish converts, whereas Paul and the the Gentiles in his traveling presbytery would focus on discipling the Gentiles who were coming to faith. And that's where he turns in verse twelve is to the Gentiles: Epaphras, Luke, and and Demas. Uh, Epaphras, he says, is, is who is one of you. Epaphras was a pastor. From, from Colossae. Uh, in fact, Epaphras, we heard in chapter 1, Epaphras was the one who had first preached the gospel to the Colossians. And Paul here describes how their pastor prays for them, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras exemplifies what a praying life looks like. He struggles, he wrestles, he agonizes in prayer on behalf of his church. This is part of, when we, when we think about prayer, we're, sometimes we get really focused on sort of praying for, for, for me and my concerns. But Epaphras prays for the church. Epaphras prays for the flock. He prays, he agonizes in prayer. He wrestles, he struggles for the flock in Colossae. And indeed, throughout the region. And in, in verse fourteen, uh, because in verse thirteen when he says, "I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis," what does it mean he worked hard? I mean, perhaps, perhaps it might include that as he as he's doing some, you might say, studying and you know, continued training in, for the ministry with Paul. There could be some of that, but the the focus here is. He's worked hard in his prayers. He's worked hard. He's been diligent in praying for them. Do we really believe that prayer is the most important thing? It's often been said that if there's there's something in your life that you're not praying about, then you're basically saying to God, hey, don't worry about this one. I got it. Because if there's something in the life of the church that we're not praying about, we're basically telling God, hey, you know, I got this. If, there, if there's, I mean, if you're, not, if you're not praying for me in my preaching, then you're basically saying, ah, Peter can handle it. He doesn't need God. <laughs> please don't, don't, please don't, don't think that for a moment. Because prayer is, the, what are you doing in prayer? In prayer, you are coming before the one who made all things, the one who rules and governs all things. And you are saying, please, do something about it, <laughs> because he is the one who can, and he's the one who has promised that he will. In verse 14, Paul adds greetings from Luke, the beloved physician, uh, best known for writing the books of Luke and Acts. He often traveled with Paul. And and then Demas. All we know about Demas is that he later betrayed Paul, as we hear in 2 Timothy 4. So it's worth noting even the apostles could not read hearts. So you know, Demas turned out to turn against the gospel and uh, turn against Paul. Um, but so that, that's but here Demas is part of the traveling presbytery, working together with Paul and Luke and Timothy and the rest. And then as he's passed on the greetings from those around him, he then gives greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Uh, Paul mentions that there's a, there are the connections between the several churches in that region. So Colossae and Laodicea and the church in Nympha's house clearly are connected. Paul expects that they are going to, they have regular contact with each other. They, the t- these towns are not that far apart. And, uh, there appear to be then several churches within the city of Colossae. In chapter 1, verse 2, Paul had addressed the saints and faithful brethren in Colossae. Um, and as we saw there, when Paul says saints and faithful brethren, brethren is one of Paul's terms for the sort of the ministers, the 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 sort of the ordained leadership of, um, of the church. And but then in the book of Philemon, as we'll see next time, it's addressed to Philemon, his wife, pastor Archippus and the church that meets in Philemon's house. So it appears that in the city of Colossae, there are several churches or we sometimes call them house churches. In those days, the larger, the larger houses could hold 50 to a hundred people. So that's probably about the size of, of the, the gatherings of, of the church at the time. Uh, but the various house churches in a given city or, or region would join together in a common eldership. I mean, we use the word presbytery, but basically, all of the all of the elders, all of the, the sort of the ministers of of the church in a region were working together. Uh, Paul meets uh, in the book of Acts with the the elders of Ephesus, which refers to um, a very large gathering of, of 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 churches or house churches. So. Uh, and then verse seventeen, Paul says, "Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord.'" Uh, so, Archippus, as, as we'll see in Philemon, is another pastor in Colossae, and uh, Paul is still training Epaphras, uh, but Epaphras will, will be sent back when he's when he's complete with his completed with his training. Uh, but the book of Philemon will be addressed to both Philemon and Archippus. And so when Paul says here, this enigmatic, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord, what's he referring to? Read the book of Philemon. He's, he, Paul has a separate letter to, to Philemon and Archippus saying, make sure you help Philemon work through this whole situation with Onesimus and make sure that that, that is resolved well, um, which we can, we'll, we'll come to in the next couple weeks. Uh, but Paul is—you can, you can see here how Paul is talking to—he he, has—he has this traveling presbytery, he has this eldership that he's working with. Paul—Paul Paul does not think of himself as an individualist. His—his uh, his missionary team. I mean, just the named people here consists of at least eight people, including himself, and then there are several others. I mean, Timothy, Titus, these aren't mentioned here. They, these are they travel around delivering letters, carrying messages. This is this is Paul would send various of these associates on uh, on various tasks because Paul believes his own teaching. The church is one body. Each member needs the others. There's no place for sort of lone ranger evangelists wandering the countryside. And so he wants the church to pray for those who preach the gospel. It's something that in our individualistic age, we we tend to sort of think of things as, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to do this over here by myself. And yes, there may be times when you're the only Christian around, uh, but it's it's the The point of evangelism is evangelism is actually something that the church does together and it's partly through the preaching of the gospel as the word of the Lord goes forth to the nations. But these concluding verses of Colossians also show us something about prayer, especially verse 12. How does Paul know that Epaphras labors for the Colossians in his prayers? Because Paul's traveling presbytery prays together regularly. Paul is not only not an individualist in his evangelism, he's also not an individualist in his prayer life. I've often found that it's much easier to pray together than it is to pray alone. Because, uh, sure, uh, sometimes we, get, we can be self-conscious about, but get, get over it. Don't be self-conscious. We're, we're coming to God together. We, we're, how did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father. This is we, we come together as God's people. But once you fix your heart on the fact that you are in the presence of almighty God, uh, the fact that you're in the presence of a few other little humans shouldn't bother you. The people around you aren't the important sort of they're not the ones whose whose what what they what they're hearing doesn't matter. What are you saying to God? So the concluding verses of chapter 4 suggest that, that both evangelism and prayer were things that Paul considered to be corporate as part of the life of the church together. And certainly, I mean, it's obviously individuals within the body that do, you know, one person prays at a time, unless you're in a Korean prayer meeting, in which case everybody prays at the same time as loud as possible. But uh, if you've never been in a Korean prayer meeting, I highly recommend that you do it once at least more than once might be overwhelming, but uh, Korean prayer meetings are, I mean, everybody is praying as loud as they can at the top of their lungs at the same time, all, a diff- all different prayers. It's, I mean, it's a remarkable experience. Um, they are, and, and they will go on for hours. So, I, mean, they, I you, there are some, I have some Korean brothers who have some criticisms of how they do things, but my, my point is simply, until we're doing better than them, we have no, point, we have no place to criticize. <laughs> so, but how, how we pray together is important. So, so that's where I, I kind of wanted to, us to see that to then be able to go back and look at what Paul's saying in verses two to six, when he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So... You are to pray. Now, and the you here is plural. Paul wants to see the Colossian Christians praying together. That as we pray together, our prayer improves. And he, he, he realizes this is not easy. That's why he says to be watchful, to be vigilant, to keep awake. That would be a, a good way of putting it. And we maybe part of our our sleepiness in prayer comes that we... We, we have this strange practice of closing our eyes when we pray. I do it too. Uh, for a while, I tried to stop it, but then it came back again. I don't know. But how are we to be vigilant in prayer? How are we to be watchful? Paul says, with thanksgiving. Giving thanks to God for his great kindness in Jesus. And that is what then drives verse 3 on what, what we are to pray for. Because... I know oftentimes our prayers get really self-obsessed. We're, it's all about me and my situation and all the things I'm dealing with in life. Help me with this. Help me with that. Do this. Do that. I need this. I need that. But when you, when you look at the prayers of the Bible, when you look at the Psalms, when you look at the prayers of, of the prophets, of, of the apostles, of our Lord Jesus himself, the prayers of the scriptures invariably come back to the throne of god come back to what god is doing in 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 his people in history the prayer may may start out self-centered sometimes in the psalms the the psalmist is is focused on his, his own situation but when we think about our situation we must always be drawn back to the king of kings and the lord of lords the one who sits at the right hand of the father because if if you have been united to christ so that you have died with him and been raised with him been given new life in him then the center of your life as paul says in chapter three is christ when christ who is your life appears you also will appear with him in glory and so your prayers should always be drawn back to Him, so that you cannot help but rejoice and give thanks for all that He has done. So this is where it's useful to to pray the Psalms, to pray the prayers of of the Scriptures, and also to pray prayers from that other Christians have 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 prayed. It was something that I I have found very helpful over the years to to have others teach me how to pray, and not just both people around me, but then also throughout the whole of of the history of the church, that this has formed the foundation for my prayer life, both in family and in church and in my personal prayers. And Paul does not specify everything that we should pray for. He he assumes that the Colossians uh, know that we should pray for everything. But he asks specifically that we should pray for the spread of the gospel, And especially in his own ministry, that the mystery of Christ would be boldly proclaimed. He says that, pray for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Pray for the clarity of the gospel that it, as it goes forth. And he particularly refers to it here as, as the, the mystery of Christ. If you recall back in, in chapter 1, uh, verse 24 and following, he had spent some time describing and explaining what, is it, what does he mean by the mystery of Christ. The mystery, mystery for Paul does not mean something that's obscure and hard to figure out. He, mystery means that which was not previously revealed but has now been revealed so this is where the mystery of Christ is not something obscure and hard to understand. The mystery of Christ is that Christ has come. As, as, you, as you look at uh, verse 25 of chapter 1, Paul speaks of how he became a, a, a minister of, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. It was hidden. It's now something that's been revealed. And what is that mystery? Well, to them, verse 27, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory is the mystery of God. The mystery of God is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The mystery of God is that Jesus Christ is the one who has taken our sin upon himself and destroyed the power of sin, death, and the devil. He is the one who has joined us to him so that we might have life in his name. The mystery of God is that Jew and Gentile alike have been reconciled in one body because in Jesus Christ, all the nations now are called to come to him. And that mystery of God is as he puts it in chapter 2, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So pray that your pastor, and indeed that pastors all over the world, would make clear the mystery of God, the mystery of Christ, the gospel of of our Savior. Because Christ has called me to preach this mystery to you. He has entrusted me with the feeding of your souls. So pray that Christ would make me faithful, that the Spirit would empower me for the glory of God and your salvation. I need your prayers just as much as you need mine. And our our prayers are mutually needed. In verse 4, Paul says that pastors need the prayers of Christ's people. In verse 12, in the example of Epaphras, he says that Christ's people need the prayers of their pastor because we need one another in the praying life. And how should you walk? Verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Some translations say redeeming the time because it's, it's, it's the, that that our time, our time has been, has been pulled in all sorts of unfortunate directions. And so we need to redeem the time, make the best use of the time, sort of recapture our time and use the time that we have for the building up of the kingdom of Christ. That the, after all, if we pray as Jesus taught us, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying, may it start with me. May it start with the way I use my time, that I may use my time to, to seek first the kingdom of God, which, which means that all the things that you're called to do in your daily life, in you, all those things that you're called to do are things that you're supposed to be doing as you walk in wisdom toward outsiders, as you walk in wisdom with your children, as you walk in wisdom with your parents, as you walk in wisdom with all the situations that you face but particularly here, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Here, because this is where, how does the church participate in the evangelistic ministry that God has given to his church? Well, the way the congregation does is by walking in wisdom toward outsiders. The way that you walk and the way that you talk should be characterized by grace. Grace-filled speech. What, what is grace and how does it get in your speech? Well, it means reflecting Christ in how you talk, in the, that your words display the same humility and kindness that we saw in chapter three, because Christ is your life. A, fr- a pastor friend of mine put it this way. The Pharisees reviled Jesus. What was one of the names they gave to him? Friend of sinners. We should ask ourselves how he conducted himself around sinners that resulted in him continuing to get invited to their feasts? This is this is part of what I've observed in the way that I, as, as I've been walking with outsiders in the last year. Their experience of Christians is such that they wouldn't want to invite a Christian to their feast because they're always condemning me. And something that, that, That's not the way that Jesus treated sinners. If you spend all your time telling people what's wrong with them, (laughs) they're not going to invite you in. (laughs) They're not going to say, "Oh, this is this, this is a person we should invite to our party." But Jesus keeps getting invited to their parties. Why? It's it's not because Jesus is soft on sin. I mean, we all know that Jesus is not soft on sin. Jesus is gentle with sinners, though. There's a distinction. Jesus tells tells the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. He doesn't agree with those who condemn He also says, Neither do I condemn you. He's the way that Jesus engages with sinners gets him invited to spend more time with sinners. Paul's approach to dealing with outsiders flows out of his understanding of who we are in Christ. Paul sees us as you have been united to Christ. His life has now become yours. You are now to live with that light, to live with that salt, seasoning your speech so that you are gracious because you see that these people, just like Jesus looked out and saw that the sheep without a shepherd, we see these people who are wandering and our hearts should be broken for them. But how do you say it to them? oftentimes you have to wait until they're ready to hear it. And, I mean, how many times does our barging in somewhere and saying, ah, we know what's wrong with you. How often does that go well? (laughs) That's where that patience and humility uh, goes a lot farther. It reminds me of the debate between the sun and the wind as to which one was stronger. So they decided to to put their debate to a test. Which one could get a man to take off his coat? So the wind blew and blew, gusting with all his might to try to blow the man's coat off. But the man just wrapped it more tightly around him. Finally, the exhausted the wind said, ah, now you try. The sun came out from behind a cloud and shone brilliantly. Soon it got quite hot and the man took off his coat. That's what Paul's talking about. Paul shines the warmth of the grace of God, the mystery of Christ, on our hearts and shows us who we ought to be and who, indeed, we are in Christ. It's as Luther once said, The law says, do this, and it is never done. The gospel says, believe this, and it is done already. The law cannot force us to pray and speak graciously. No, it's the grace of God that recreates us in the image of Christ so that prayer and gracious speech pour forth because of who we are in him. But also think about how it all works together because if you are, if you are praying regularly for the preaching of the gospel, if you are praying that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, And if you are walking wisely and speaking graciously to outsiders, demonstrating the beauty and goodness of the Lord in the way that we walk, then we should expect to see many people come to faith in Jesus Christ through that combination. So that's where praying and speaking graciously work together for the end of evangelism, which is actually what Paul's talking about. So let's pray. Lord have mercy. Help us because we we wind up running hither and yon and trying to pursue all sorts of things that are, are not as fruitful. So help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, that we might that we might hear the voice of your beloved Son, that we might that we might walk in wisdom towards those who are out, who are outside the faith, that we might have our speech seasoned with salt, that we might that we might know how to answer each one, how we might speak wisely and well in each situation where you put us, that we, might, that we might reflect the love of Jesus, that our words and our deeds might bear witness to the faithfulness of your Son, that we might grow and increase in, as your gospel flourishes and grows in our midst. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.